find your way in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, and we currently find ourselves approximately halfway through the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Pastor Dale read it already, we will read it again. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, one who has spoken this universe into existence, you have spoken through your word And you still bring life out of nothing. Speak to us through your word and bring forth life. Life for some for the first time. And newness of life and fruit for others who have already been born again. In Jesus name. Amen. If you've ever had a loved one who you are quite certain is going to die, there is a sense of urgency that you want to communicate to them something of your love for them. And sometimes that expression of love in words just doesn't seem quite adequate. You wish that you could do something more. Well, that is something of the situation that we find ourselves with a woman by the name of Mary. She has some knowledge, some inkling of Jesus' impending doom, his impending death. After all, she lives in Bethany with her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. And the hostility uh, towards Jesus is heating up higher and higher. And it's escalated even to the point that we saw early on in John chapter 11 when Jesus talks about going to Bethany, Thomas says, okay, let's go there and die. Because the hostility towards Jesus was known to be so great. And then, of course, Jesus does that fantastic miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, which just drew more attention to Jesus, right? More popularity. Quite a buzz. And again, remember, Bethany is just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so the intensity of the opposition towards Jesus is heating up so much even that the end of chapter 11, it's gone to the highest level in, in the Israelite elite. The Sanhedrin, or at least the committee out of the Sanhedrin has met. And the chief priest, the highest ranking official of leadership in Israel, a guy by the name of Caiaphas has determined this Jesus must die. Of course, Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. He said, don't you guys know that it's 
that one man needs to die on behalf of the people and he didn't realize that he was saying a prophecy that would come true that namely Jesus would die on behalf of his people not the people of Israel per se but the scattered children of God and that's where we find ourselves in the narrative let's pick it up in verse 1 Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead So towards the end of chapter 11, Jesus and his disciples retreated to Bethany because the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead and his hour had not yet come. A little bit of time goes by, several months, and now Jesus and his disciples go back into uh, this suburb of Jerusalem, of Bethany, and they are going to observe the Passover. This is one of three Passovers that's recorded in the book of John, the Gospel of John. Um, You're familiar with the Passover. The Passover was a Jewish holiday, a kind of independence day for the Jewish people celebrating their exodus from Egypt. And and it's fitting and appropriate that Jesus, this this is the last Passover Jesus will observe before he is crucified. And he himself becomes the the Paschal Lamb, the sacrificial lamb of this particular Passover. So it's six days before. So that... That sets the time frame, uh, probably Saturday night, the, the, the most recent Saturday before Jesus will be executed on that Friday. So it's the following day will be uh, what we commonly call Palm Sunday on the Christian calendar where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And so this is the the night before, so they've probably just observed the Sabbath. And so this is kind of the the meal following the Sabbath observance. And notice where Jesus is at. He's in Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So Jesus is back in Bethany, the suburb of Jerusalem. Um, He's, we're going to see at this meal that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are all there. Jesus' close friends. Uh, we find out from the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew that we might think it would be uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, but it's not. It's Simon the leper's house. Um, Simon the leper, we don't really know much about him, except that at least at one point he was a leper. We can assume that he wasn't a leper when he was uh, hosting them, but had been a leper, and evidently the nickname stuck, probably was a leper, one of the lepers, the many lepers who was healed by Jesus. And he's hosting this, and, and there uh, we see Jesus with the others. In verse 2, so they, came, so they made him supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So they're making Jesus this supper. Probably this was a meal that was in honor of Jesus, a meal of gratitude and thanks to Jesus. We also see there that, uh, as we might expect, Mary is there, or Martha, I'm sorry, is there serving, right? Uh, Martha, she, she uh, is known along with Mary from, for that passage in Luke chapter 10. Remember where Martha's busy uh, serving and, and she sees Mary sitting there at the feet of Jesus learning and she kind of rebukes Jesus or at least tells him what to do and says, Jesus, aren't you going to tell her, you know, to, to get busy and help out with me? And Jesus actually winds up rebuking Martha and says, no, that Mary has chosen the better thing. She's listening to the word and uh, she's chosen the better portion. And so that gives us a little bit of backdrop. And so it's, it's remarkable here that, that Martha is serving. And then we also see that Lazarus is one of those reclining with Jesus. Now, you need to understand a little bit about um, the table etiquette, the table setup of ancient Palestine, of ancient Near East, and, and actually in the Middle East today. Actually, this was, uh, came to light to me, I remember when we were in Africa, 
And this part of Africa is blanketed by Islam. And so because of that, there's a lot of Middle Eastern culture that influences that area. And uh, we were there visiting these missionaries. And one of the guys with us, he stood about six feet three inches tall. And they told us to sit down on the ground because we are going to have dinner. And they brought out this mat. And I could see my friend six foot three inches, trying to get comfortable sitting on the ground. And he he winds up putting his feet on this mat. And the missionary then uh, gently but lovingly instructed him, you're putting your feet on the table. (laughs) Get your feet off of the table. That little mat in the center was the table. And we were all there sitting around the table on the floor. And, and and this was how it was in the ancient Near East, and it's how it is in much of Middle Eastern culture today. The, the table is usually a mat on the floor or, or a very short table. And so those pictures that, that you have hanging up in your house of uh, that come from the medieval period of the Last Supper where they're all sitting down around the table, you can throw those out now. They're... They're not true. They would have been laying down most likely on their left side with their head closest towards a a small table or mat in the middle. They would have been lying down and their, their right hand would have been accessible to grab food from the table. And so that's the picture. And so Lazarus is there with them reclining around this table on the floor. Verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So now the camera focuses in on Mary. We know Mary from chapter 11. She was weeping, she was crying, she was the brother of Lazarus who had died, and she's one of the women along with Martha who says to Jesus, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. She's the Mary who in Luke chapter 10 was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to the word. She is a woman that comes up quite often in the Gospels. And the camera focuses in on her and she has this this bottle of perfume. It's described here of pure nard. Okay? Now you probably, if you go to Macy's, they're probably not going to squirt you with some nard perfume. Uh, But this was very expensive perfume. We find out from the lips of Judas just a couple verses later, he says... Could this not have been sold for 300 denarii? In other words, the value of this was 300 denarii. And of course, you all know how much a denarii is, right? A denarii was a day's wages. We're helped by this by the parable of the day laborers that Jesus said, uh, speaks in, in the Gospel of Matthew where the different laborers came out and worked different hours, but they all got one denarii. So denarii was roughly about a day's wages. So 300 days wages... Given Sabbath Saturdays and holidays on the Jewish calendar is, is approximately a, a one year's wages is the idea. And so think about how much you make over the course of a year. Let's just say you make $50,000 in the course of a year. That's how much this bottle of perfume was worth. Now, I did some intense research on perfumes, which means I did a search on DuckDuckGo, not on that other G word search engine. It's forbidden these days. We're moving to DuckDuckGo. And on my vast amount of research that took a whole three seconds typing in expensive perfumes, I came across one perfume. This is Jean Patou's Joy. That's what it's called, Joy. This was considered the most expensive perfume of the 20th century. It's about $1,800 an ounce. It's notorious because it's made from flowers. 
an astonishing 10,600 jasmine flowers and 28 dozen roses per bottle. That's a lot of juicing of flowers. And so this is a, a very expensive perfume of today. But even still, this perfume, let's assume there was 12 ounces of this, it still would be $24,000, probably not an entire year's wages. So this perfume that Mary doused is even of higher value than this very expensive perfume called Joy. So what was Mary doing with this $50,000 bottle of perfume, right? It's, it, this is an odd kind of scenario. We, we, we don't know. Was this something that, you know, we, we don't know. There's no evidence that Mary is married. Um, was she a widow? Was this an heirloom that she had received that, was, that she sold off a little bit, you know, each month to pay for her food and housing? I don't know. Was this something maybe she inherited from Lazarus because he died? Um, and then, you know, Lazarus comes back to life and he's like, oh, you could have it, you know. That, that would be awkward, right? You know, what if Martha didn't get anything? And, you know, Lazarus has to come back and tell, I'm sorry, you know, I cut you out of the will. We don't know how she had this, but this was, this is an enormous sum of money, especially for a woman in that day. And again, keep in mind, uh, you know, that a, a, a woman in the, this ancient world, there was very little opportunities to make money. And so this was something that Mary was probably in many ways dependent upon for her livelihood. And not only that, I mean, if, if that's not awkward enough, you know, here she is dousing $50,000 worth of perfume and foot deodorant on Jesus. But notice what the text says here in verse 3. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. With her hair. Now, in the ancient world, to even for a woman, especially if she was married, to even let her hair down was considered something that was inappropriate, to say the least. But Craig Keener, in his New Testament backgrounds commentary, says religious Jews resented married women who uncovered their heads and exposed their hair to men's gazes. Because Mary's brother and sister, uh, because Mary's brother and sister, but not her husband, are mentioned, which is unusual in the case of, of married women, she may well have been unmarried, thus young, widowed, divorced, or even rare, uh, she was not married. Um, but acting thus towards a famous, albeit single, rabbi, namely Jesus, might still have raised some pious eyebrows. In any case, normally only servants would even touch the master's feet with their hands, much less their hair. To wash another's feet was considered the lowliest task of a servant. In fact, it, it was something that in, in Jewish tradition wasn't was even outside the bounds of a Jewish servant. You had to be Gentile servant to wash somebody else's feet. And so here this woman is letting down her hair and she's washing Jesus' feet with this $50,000 valued perfume. This would have been extremely awkward. You'd have been in the room like, what's going, you know, what is she doing? Why is she doing that? And then John writes, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The smell of the perfume wafted through the entire house. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So here, social justice Judas chimes in. This is awful. We need to redistribute this wealth. We need to sell this to the poor. And he virtue signals. He has this great virtuous idea what should be done with this perfume. It should be sold and given to the poor. Now, of course, we should be concerned about the poor, but often the poor is used as a kind of blanket, you know. But what about the poor, you know? And that's something of what Judas is doing here because he has no real concern for people in poverty. He has no real concern for people in need. Because John tells us in hindsight, now, and keep in mind, the disciples wouldn't have known this at this point, right? That he was actually stealing from the money bag. He was concerned because he saw this train was going to wreck. Namely, he was in it for his own self-benefit. He was following Jesus for what he could get out of it. And he began to become aware that Jesus is going to die. This is not going to end well for Jesus. And he's thinking, what can I get out of this deal before it crashes? We see him pop up in, in the following chapters where he's betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's not concerned about the poor. But yet at the same time, well, we'll touch on that later. Verse 7. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, there's all kinds of interpret difficulties with the verse. Because it says, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What does the it refer to? Well, let her alone so that she may keep it. At the first glance, we might think, well, is it talking about the, the perfume? Well, it doesn't seem likely. It seems like she poured all of it. And if we read the other gospels, she actually broke the flask. And so, you know, and, and, and she started with the head and worked her way down to the feet, it doesn't seem likely that she was keeping it for the day of his burial. So what does the it refer to? Does it refer to maybe that she may be able to hold on to this moment uh, after I die? Um, It seems to me the best understanding is that, that she would keep it in the sense that she was keeping this for the day of my burial. Leave her alone. Her plan was to keep this for the day of my burial, but she was realizing that he was going to die and she wanted to give some expression of love to me while I'm here. And so she did this, what she was planning on doing for the day of my burial. That seems to be the best interpretation. But either way, what's clear is Jesus rebukes Judas and says, let her alone. It's okay what she did. Now, now again, This signals for us something very important about not just Mary, not just about Judas, but about Jesus himself and what he believed about himself. Because notice what he says in verse 8, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. You always have the poor with you. In fact, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15, when God is giving instructions to Israel about how to care for the poor, but he also gives this realization that poverty is something that's always going to be around. As long as we live in a fallen world, it's always going to exist. But what this does teach us is what Jesus believes about himself. Because, I mean, think about it. I mean, what if if somebody poured... A $50,000 bottle of perfume on you. Or was planning to do that. I mean, certainly you would say, well, mm, no, that's, that's a little bit much, right? 
That's a little bit extravagant. That's over the top. I know you like me, Mary, but now we're getting a little bit, uh, you know, idolatrous here. You're, you're kind of putting me on a pedestal here, Mary. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, you're always going to have the poor with me, with you. But you're not always going to have me. In other words, Jesus acknowledged that this outlandish, seemingly reckless act of Mary was actually indicative of the value of Jesus as God in the flesh. I mean, this is the kind of act of devotion and love and adoration that ought to be reserved only for deity, lest it become idolatrous. And that's what Mary is doing. And Jesus accepts the gift. Verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came. Not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. So many people are coming to the suburb of Jerusalem, namely Bethany. And, and you know, <laughs> there's two celebrities. They, they want to get selfies with Jesus and Lazarus. They, they want autographs, you know. They, this was a big deal. I mean, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. This was a very public miracle at a funeral where Jesus interrupts the funeral and brings Lazarus back from the dead. And so, needless to say, many people are coming curious to see Jesus and certainly curious to see Lazarus, you know. What was it like, Lazarus? What happened, you know? Verse 10. Ominous verse 10. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him... Many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Wow. The religious elite, the chief priests, as they're described here, they not only remember, according to the end of chapter 11, they want Jesus dead. But now because Lazarus is evidence of the miracle that Jesus did and many people are believing because of the testimony of Lazarus, now they want Lazarus dead. And not only that, notice it says it was the chief priests. Now the chief priests almost exclusively were of the sect of the Sadducees. Remember we talked in previous weeks, this was the more progressive religion in ancient Israel. This was the guys who did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So this puts quite a wrinkle in their own progressive theology. Because here is this man, Lazarus, who in a sense is a foretaste of the future resurrection of all believers standing right before them. They want him dead. And this brings us to where I want to take the application of this passage. We see three responses to the glorious Lord Jesus in this passage. Three, three various responses that we can learn from. The first, I, I want to call you to beware of hardened deceivers. Beware of hardened deceivers. And this is what we see with this last group of chief priests. Sometimes there's a tendency to think that somebody who is not a Christian is going to sit objectively and reason through the evidences and come to rational conclusions concerning the Christian faith. But that is not what we see the chief priest doing. <laughs> I mean, 
The evidence was all there, right? <clears throat> Lazarus came back from the dead. Everybody knew it. He was in the four, day, four days in the tomb and as Martha said, by now he stinketh. And yet he comes out of the grave fully alive. And he's alive to tell everybody about it. And so they're, they're not sitting there objectively looking at the evidences and coming to rational conclusions about who Jesus is. It's utterly irrational. They're in the, the words of the Apostle Paul. They are in the truth. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The truth is there. But they, like a, a person in a swimming pool on a summer day, they're holding the ball underneath. They're in close contract, contact with the truth. But they're holding it underneath between their legs so that nobody can see it. They want Lazarus dead. Now, granted, I understand that not every unbeliever is as hardened as this. There are varying degrees of unbelief. Now, all sinners, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, are dead in trespasses and sins. You can't get any more dead than dead. But nonetheless, even if you read through the book of Proverbs, there's different kinds of fools. You have the petit, the naive, usually associated with youth. He's a fool, but he's still a little bit more open-minded. And then you have the fool, the kasil, or the nabal. This is the, the proud, arrogant person who, who doesn't listen to anybody. But then you have the most hardened of the fools in the book of Proverbs, the, the lace, the, the scoffer, the mocker. That's where the Pharisees, that's where the Sadducees were at at this point. They're scoffers. They're hardened. And so... Uh, the reason why I bring that, it's doubtful that anybody in this room is a scoffer. You wouldn't be here if you were a scoffer, if you were a mocker. But I do want to tell you that be cautious that you bow your defense of the Christian faith to the scoffer and to the mocker. That you feel like you always have to appease them. I'm tired of apologetic apologetics. You know what I mean by that? The apologetics that, well, I'm so sorry that we believe that there's a difference between men and women, and I know that may be offensive to you, and I'm so sorry about, I'm so sorry what we believe about sexual ethics, and, you know, I really feel bad about that, but you really still should become a Christian. The apologetic apologetics, away with it. Away with it. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be tactful and kind and gentle in our speech and all that. But let's stop apologizing for the Christian faith. It's the truth. It's the truth. And we need to show the folly of unbelief and help people to see there's a better way. Come to the truth. Come to the light. Don't live and believe in the darkness. Come to the light. But not only beware of hardened deceit. Uh, one more point on hardened deceit. It is understanding that assaults against the Christian faith are often going to be skewed, always going to be skewed with lies. You know, j just something as simple as do some research on throughout the 20th century, all the claims to the missing link. Do a little research on that, the missing link, who's been found many times over fraudulent attempts by scientists to demonstrate this missing link between apes and humans. And, and almost all of them have been demonstrated to be absolute hoaxes. Figures lie and liars figure. Remember that. Moving on. Not only beware of hardened deceit, beware of hypocritical discipleship. We see this obviously with Judas. Look at verse 4 again. But Judas Iscariot, one of the, his disciples who was intending to betray him, said to him, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, part of this warning, beware beware of hypocritical discipleship, is the reality that certainly we can deceive ourselves. And I, and I hope to God that there's no Judases in the room. But we do need to be aware of that reality. We need to examine our hearts periodically. We shouldn't be obsessed with it. We shouldn't make it a, a daily, regular habit. You know, somebody is likened self-examination to looking in the rearview mirror of the car. It's something you want to do periodically, but you don't want to stare. <laughs> if you stare, you'll wrap your car around a tree. And that doesn't go well. But more, I think more for our purposes, I want us to beware of hypocritical discipleship and its potential influence upon us. Because what's fascinating here is when you compare what Judas says with the other Gospels, the other Gospels just say it was the disciples that said this. The disciples said, shouldn't we have sold this for 300 denarii and given it to the poor? John's the only one who records that these were actually Judas's words. And so I think we can assume that Judas wasn't alone in this, but Judas had influenced the other disciples in thinking and rationalizing that what Mary was doing here was reckless. And that this kind of singular devotion to Jesus was outlandish. This was a little bit radical. And let's be honest here, there's some persuasiveness in this council, is there not? I mean, I am cheap. I am Youngstonian cheap. I used to be regarded as the furnace Nazi in my house. Wanting to keep the temperature as low as possible. Lest I pay more than I want to on those gas bills. And so here this woman is. With a $50,000 bottle of perfume. Dousting Jesus with it. It seems a little bit of a waste. And then the way she went about doing it, I mean, couldn't it have been a little bit more tactful? I mean, a little bit more propriety? I mean, to let down your hair and, and you know, Jesus' dirty feet, she's washing his feet with her hair? I mean, it's, it's awkward. Is this really called for? And yet, all of it doesn't make sense. Unless Jesus is worth it. It only makes sense if he deserves all of our adoration and worship and devotion and love. So we need to beware of that counsel. And sometimes it's counsel that comes from our own heart. But this is a little bit too radical. This is a little bit too much Christianity. You see, the frightening, shocking thing here is Judas is an advocate for a respectable kind of Christianity that doesn't take things too far. That doesn't give too much devotion to Christ. And by the way, those, those sirens are heard all throughout our culture that, that it's, it's not so much Christianity that's the problem. It's, it's radical Christianity. It's not so much Islam that's the problem. It's radical Islam. But, but friends, it's, it's not the radical that makes Islam wrong. It's that it's living for a lie. And radical Christianity, Christianity that would douse $50,000 worth of perfume on Jesus as a final act of love and devotion to Him is actually just quite consistent with who Jesus is. So beware 
of hypocritical discipleship that's comfortable with a kind of respectable Christianity. But thirdly, be inspired by humble devotion. So beware of hardened deceit. Beware of hypocritical discipleship. And now be inspired by humble devotion. And of course we see this with Mary. Sweet Mary. What an amazing act of devotion she demonstrates. Of humble love for Jesus. And all this is rooted and anchored in her knowledge of who Jesus is. J.C. Ryle comments, she did it under the influence of a heart full of love and gratitude. She thought nothing too great and, and good to bestow on such a Savior. Sitting at the feet in days gone by and hearing His word, she found peace for her conscience and pardon for her sins. At this very moment, she saw Lazarus alive and well, sitting at her master's side, her own brother Lazarus, whom, she had brought, whom he had brought back from the grave, greatly loved, she thought, she could not show too much love in return. And having freely received, she freely gave. See, friend, she knew who Jesus was. She saw this Jesus gentle and lowly, weeping at the graveside of her brother Lazarus. She saw this Jesus in His anger, in a sense, snorting at death. She saw Jesus in all of His glorious omnipotence saying, Lazarus, come forth! And He came forth. She saw whatever trajectory of her life and and the direction it was on before she knew Jesus, before she turned towards Jesus and became a devoted follower of Jesus, she saw what she was rescued from. And she loved Him for it. She was devoted to Him. And she was humble. She didn't care about what others thought. She didn't care about the raised eyebrows. In humility, she died to the smiles and frowns of men and women. And she let down her hair. And she washed the feet of her Savior. We ought to be inspired by that. Friend, have you pondered where your life would be without Jesus? What kind of invisible shackles of sin you'd be walking around, clanking? What kind of darkness, what kind of tentacles sin would have taken control over your life? Have you pondered what it would be like carrying around the burden of guilt for your entire life? And then Jesus set you free. As the hymn writer says, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith And I saw the light. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Him enough that the world around you would look at your life and say, that's reckless. That's That's a little bit too much devotion there. It grieves my heart periodically when you hear of parents who find out that their children, adult children, have resolved to go to the mission field and sacrifice and service to Jesus. And they're upset about it. And even angry with pastors who would encourage such activity and devotion. 
That is not a good sign. Because again, Mary in her act of devotion was reflective of the infinite value and worth of this Jesus. And so, again, I ask the question, does your devotion, your humble devotion to Jesus, does it cause unbelievers around you to raise their eyebrows and say, hmm, that's reckless. That's a little bit too much Christianity. It should. Also, we can't help but think of the imagery here that John lays before us with the smell of the perfume that fills the entire house. And on the other hand, the the stench of Judas's unbelieving heart and what both of those actions would have smelled like in the nostrils of God the Almighty. One, a beautiful act of devotion and love to Jesus. One, a sickening act of love and devotion to self. One, indicative of a love of money that had choked out his heart and sunk his soul ultimately to hell. Another, a fragrant offering to God the Almighty that would have been a sweet aroma in the nostrils of Almighty God. What do you smell like this morning? Is your life a fragrant offering to God or a repulsive stench of an offering to yourself? One more thing I don't want us to miss before we move on from this passage. Craig Keener, again, in his backgrounds commentary, says corpses were first anointed to clean them and then washed with water. This was an important act on Mary's part. Those executed as criminals may have sometimes been denied anointing before burial, though not Jesus. We don't know what was going on in Mary's heart, but what was clear was Jesus had a bounty on his head. And there had to have been some knowledge that He's not got much longer. And so she anoints him for burial. Which within this very context is fascinating because the following passage we're going to see Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey like a king. In the rest of John chapter 12, and really the rest of the gospel of John, whenever it speaks of the cross, it speaks of the cross of Jesus in a most exalted kind of way. In fact, he uses that language of him being lifted up, exalted on the cross. And so what we have here, it would seem, in this anointing of Jesus by Mary, is the anointing of a king. A king like no other king. A king who would ascend to his throne that would not be a gold-plated chair, but would be a Roman cross. And he would be buried in a castle, a tomb, as the king like no other king. So Mary here Cognizant that Jesus isn't going to live much longer. She anoints him as the king. Let me close with the story of this wealthy businessman who loved Jesus. And he had aspirations of being a preacher, but it became evident he just did not have the gifts nor the equipping to become a preacher. 
But he would use his assets, his wealth, as a way to promote the gospel. So he started this mission in the city in downtown, uh, and he bought this hall where the gospel could be preached, and people could come and hear the gospel, and people could come and be fed. And he carried on this ministry for many years, and many people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And one thing that he loved to do on the weekends when everybody was gone was he would go in this mission hall that he owned, and he would get on his hands and knees, and he would scrub the floors, and he would clean the chairs. So here's this wealthy CEO. Every Saturday he would come in on his hands and knees and scrub and wash. And one particular Saturday, some of his employees came to the mission hall and saw him there in his raggedy clothes on his hands and knees. Of course, they were horrified by this. They said, sir, you know, stop doing this. We'll do it or we'll pay somebody to do this. He said, no. I do this every Saturday for Jesus. It's my act of devotion to Him. He was following the footsteps of Mary's humble devotion. And it's the same footsteps that we too should follow in. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Jesus is worth all of our devotion and love. We love Him. But Lord, all too often we recognize that our sacrifice is weak. Our devotion is too small. That we need to be encouraged, inspired, motivated to be even more devoted to Jesus. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name.